Okay, um, welcome again to Faith. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Mike, and uh, like Matt, glad that you're here, whether you're in person, whether you're online with us. Um, real quick before we jump into things today, we need to take care of some business, so um, we're going to do that right now. Uh, if you've been paying attention, there have been a lot of changes in the last week with regards to uh, vaccine rates, hospitalization rates, um, uh, just COVID positive rates, and new guidelines have come out from the CDC and from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. And so we've had a lot of folks saying to us, hey, you know, what's going on? How's it going to impact things here at church? And so um, while we're super excited about the directions, the direction that things are moving in, we're kind of taking this um, a little bit at a time, one step at a time. So uh, before you run out there and burn your mask, okay, just slow down. Let me tell you how this is going to work, all right? So uh, this Sunday, things are remaining the same. Uh, next Sunday and um, Sunday's moving forward until the next major shift comes and that's being forecasted for July 1st. Hold that loosely. Uh, if I've discovered anything in this season, it's, it's that things can turn on a dime and the direction that things are moving in can, you know, totally switch to the other uh, direction. But um, between now and then, uh, what the current plan is, next week and in weeks to come, we're going to offer three worship options, all right? So uh, we will still have online worship. It'll still be available. And I guarantee... Online worship is 100% COVID safe, all right? <laughs> Just saying. You will not get COVID from the Faith Covenant Church live stream feed. If you are watching somebody else's live stream feed, you may get a virus from cheating on your church, all right? Just how this works. All right. Um, option number two will be first service. And first service will remain, uh, will, will maintain the same protocol we have throughout, so if you come to first service, we're going to do six feet of distancing. Masks will be required. All right, so if you're like, hey, I want the, the, I want the maximum safety, online's your best bet. If you want the maximum safety for in-person, first, first service is the way to go. And then for second service, starting next week, uh, masks will be optional. Um, we will ask and strongly encourage you, if you have not been vaccinated, to please continue to wear your mask, to uh, go to first service, or, or you can worship online, obviously. If, you, if you're, you're not vaccinated and you're like, hey, I want to come to second service and you're masked up, that would be okay. Um, if you're sitting out there and you're going, well, who's going to police that? All right? Um, as a church, we're not going to try and police that. It gets too complicated. It gets too intrusive. And as a congregation, we are not going to police that. All right, so you're not going to bust into your fellow congregants' home, go through their medical records. You're not going to pin somebody down in the lobby and demand to see their vaccination card. We're going to ask if you're not vaccinated that you continue to wear your mask. Um, for, for kids, vaccine is not an option for kids. So faith kids will continue to be masked. Our, our middle schoolers, that will continue to be masked. And hopefully, as we move towards that July date, things will continue to move in the right direction. If you have questions, feel free to grab hold of me after service. Mike Robeson, you're in here. Go ahead and raise your hand. Mike's our church chair currently. Feel free to grab hold of him if you have questions as well. Uh, you can email us throughout the week, and uh, we'd be happy to help. So, all right? All right. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into things for today. Father, just um, 
In this crazy season, we just pray for wisdom for our leaders in our government. Pray for wisdom for our leaders here in our church. Um, God, I pray that we continue to see positive and forward direction with things uh, related to the virus. Father, I pray you would um, pour out your spirit on us, open our minds to your truth. Help us to see clearly who Jesus is. In his name we pray, amen. So if you're joining us for the first time or you've been away for a little bit, uh, we are in the midst of a series that we've entitled Signs. And what we're doing in this series is each week we are taking one of the eight miraculous signs that the Apostle John records of Jesus that he performed in his biography of Jesus' life. And we've been saying throughout the series that John didn't just randomly pick signs, but that he chose specific ones for specific reasons. John puts it this way. He says, but these were written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. And so John's going, hey, with each one of these signs, I'm trying to teach you something about who Jesus is as the Messiah, who Jesus is as the Son of God, and what it looks like to have life in him. So each week we're just taking one of the signs, we're kind of dissecting that thing, and then we're going, all right, what does this teach us about who Jesus is? Now, today's sign is recorded in three out of the four biographies of Jesus' life. And what's interesting to me is each one of the biographer zooms in on different details that surround this sign. And, and I think they do that because each one of the biographers is trying to call our attention to different aspects of Jesus' life and Jesus' work. And, and I don't have a problem with that. Like, I would contend that the miracles that Jesus performed, that they are rich, that they are deep, and that there's a number of things that they can call to our attention about his person and work. Now, the, the miracle that we're going to look at today is a miracle where Jesus um, walks. It's very familiar. Jesus walks on water in the midst of stormy seas. And most often, when somebody talks about this miracle, they will, they will they'll say, hey, th this miracle's here to help us understand that Jesus is with us in the storms of our lives. And I don't have a problem with that. I don't think John would have a problem with that. But I'm, I'm going to contend today that John points us to the details that he does as he records this particular miracle, because John has something different in mind. That, that John wants to call to uh, our minds a different facet of the person and work of Jesus. So what we're going to pick up today in John chapter 6, verse 14. We'll read through the miracle, and then we'll, we'll kind of key in on the details that John highlights and see what he might be trying to teach us about who Jesus is. So pick up John uh, 6, 14. After the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, that's important, we're going to come back to that. You should remember what we talked about last week, and if you don't, I'll feel depressed, all right? So, after the, the, the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. 
a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. And they were frightened, but he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. So as John begins, he says, hey, you know, this took place right after the previous miracle that Jesus performed. Now, this is a miracle we talked about last week, which was? Thank you. All right. It's, you put 30 hours into researching, writing a message, and then a week later, nobody can remember what you talked about. It's just de- depressing for speakers. All right. So a week ago, we, so Jesus, he's got this multitude, about 10,000 people. They're tired. They're hungry. They start crowding him and his disciples. Jesus trolls Philip. It's like, Philip, what are we going to do to get these people something to eat? Philip instantly goes into egghead mode, tells Jesus, you know, here's the math. You don't have enough money on your budget here. There's no way we can feed all of these people. And then the power of God intervenes in the normal course of natural law. And miraculously, Jesus takes two fish, five loaves, and multiplies them so that 10,000 people all get enough to eat. Now, John doesn't tell us how, but somehow the crowd figures out that Jesus has done this and has done so miraculously. And they get really excited. They're all like, we haven't seen the likes of this since like Moses or Elijah. Jesus is incredible, right? They're super excited. And then I love what John says next. It's so ironic. It says that they intended to make him king by force. Now, does anybody see the problem with that statement? Come here, Jesus. You're going to be our king whether you like it or not, right? I mean, think about it. Is there really any such thing as a forced monarch? Like, like, if somebody's really your true king, they're in control, not you. If somebody's really a true king, they rule your life. You don't rule theirs. They have the ultimate authority, not you. If somebody's a true king, you obey that person. You place your life under theirs. You you submit your will to them. If somebody's a true king, you don't tell them what to do. They tell you what to do. So when, when the crowd comes to Jesus in an effort to make him king by force, what that tells us is they don't have in mind for Jesus to be their one true king. They have in mind for Jesus to be a different kind of king, which then begs the question, what kind of king is it that they want Jesus to be? Now, I think what the crowd is excited about and what Jesus says to them a little bit later reveals to us what kind of king they're looking for. Now, the crowd, they're excited about the bread. They're like, oh my goodness, this guy took next to nothing, filled our bellies. He's amazing, right? And and after Jesus and his disciples, you know, they get across the other side of the lake, the crowd follows them to the other side of the lake. They find Jesus and they're like, hey, Jesus, where you been, buddy? It's good to see you. And then Jesus says to them, very truly I tell you, you're not looking for me 
Or you are looking for me not because you saw the signs that I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. See, they want Jesus to be the bread king. They want, they want the king who's going to meet their felt needs, who's going to fill their belly and make their kids act right and fix their marriage and get them a better job and a bigger house and a nicer car and heal their diseases. They want a bread king. They want a king who will meet their felt needs. They, 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 by taking Jesus to try and make him king by force, they have no intention of letting Jesus be the ultimate authority in their lives. They want a, a king they can control, a king who will do what they say. They want a bread king. Now, their desire for a, for, for a bread king comes from a number of places. We'll highlight a couple of them, right? First of all, the desire for a bread king, really, that's just human nature. Like, like since Genesis 3, since the garden, humanity has sought to be its own ultimate authority in life. Since Adam and Eve Humanity has sought to call the shots for itself when it comes to things like truth and morality. We want to decide for ourselves what is true and what is right and wrong. It's been happening since the garden. Now, you take that and you combine it with, with a misguided focus of the day, and you get a desire for a bread king. And we talked about this way back in miracle number one, but it's relevant, so we'll go here again today. First century Judaism. As they read their Old Testaments, you read the Old Testament, there are tons of prophecies about the Messiah. Some of the prophecies talk about the Messiah being a conquering king. Some of the prophecies about the Messiah talk about him being a suffering servant. First century AD, the Jewish people focused exclusively on the conquering king prophecies and pretty much ignored the suffering servant ones. So the expectation was, hey, when Messiah shows up, he's going to throw off the chains of Rome. He's going to take over the world. We're going to rule with him. You combine human nature with those kind of expectations, and you get a desire for a bread king. It's just a natural kind of thing. Now, Jesus knows his disciples are not immune to this. They're not immune to this at all. They grew up surrounded by these things. In fact, it, it's one of the reasons why in the New Testament, Jesus' disciples are forever going, hey, um, when are you going to establish the kingdom, Jesus? When, we're following you. When are you going to take over the world? When are we going to rule this thing with you? It's also why throughout the, the, the biographies of his life, Jesus' disciples cannot wrap their brains around the idea that he's going to die. Like, you read the New Testament repeatedly, bluntly, plainly. Jesus is constantly telling his disciples, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be handed over. They're going to do whatever they want to me. And his disciples are like, what does he mean, die? Like, they, they just can't wrap their brains around it because they've been immersed in this idea that Messiah is going to be a conquering king. So th th this, this, this idea 
this doesn't make sense to them. But in his first advent, Jesus didn't come to be a conquering king. He came to be a suffering servant. He didn't come to set people free from their oppressors. He came to set people free from their sins. He didn't come to sit on the throne of the world. He came on this, to sit on the throne of our hearts. And so this is why when you read through the New Testament, you will constantly see Jesus downplaying the idea that he's a Messiah. You will constantly see him telling people, you don't tell anybody that about me, forbidding people to tell others that he's a Messiah. It's not because Jesus doesn't think he's the Messiah. It's because Jesus knows if there is a movement that grows out of this idea of the messianic expectations for a conquering king, all that's going to do is lead to a political revolution where people get slaughtered needlessly. Not only so, but it's going to distract his disciples from the mission that he came from to save humanity from their sins. And so as, as this crowd is looking for a bread king, Jesus is like, uh-uh, I'm not having any part of my disciples getting caught up into this thing any more than they already are naturally. And so one of the other gospel writers tells us he takes his disciples, puts them in the boat, sends them off, and deals with the crowd himself. So off onto the lake the disciples go. And we're told that when they get out there, a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. Now, if you have ever been out like in a rowboat rowing or in a canoe paddling and you've got a strong headwind like in your face, that can be a miserable thing. Um, growing up, Every year, my, my family would go up and vacation on Lake Huron up north. And even as adults, you know, my family's continued to do that. A few years ago, I had an opportunity to get up there. And the house that, that we had rented had canoes. And so one day, my, my youngest brother, John, says to me, hey, let's take a canoe out. I'm like, you know what? That sounds like a great idea. So we get the canoe out onto Lake Huron, and the wind is just blowing out of the south. And we get out there, and my brother says, hey, let's paddle north first. Now, I knew this is a bad idea. For some inexplicable reason, I let my younger brother call the shot. So we're, we're paddling north, and at first it was wonderful. Like you just put your paddle in the water and lazily let it you know, kind of go back, and the canoe would just rocket forward. And the sun, it just felt good on our skin. You know, the, the wind is blowing that cool air off of the lake, and the sun's just kind of keeping you warm enough. And the scenery was just picturesque. It was a wonderful ride out. And then we turned the canoe around to come back, and it literally became the canoe ride from hell. I mean, you're paddling and paddling and paddling, and you barely make any forward progress. And the minute you stop, you start to drift backwards. And the sun became this burning ball of fiery hatred in the sky, just cooking our epidermises. And on the way back, the only thing I'm looking at, the only scenery I'm taking in, is my brother's fat head that comes up with this stupid idea that we're going to paddle north first. We're 30 minutes out. It was wonderful. We're 90 minutes plus coming back, and it was torture. To this day, I suspect he did it on purpose, right? <laughs> Some perceived injustice, you know, when we were kids that I did to him as an older brother. I do not know what it is about younger siblings forever crying about how tough their older siblings were on them growing up. Amen, older siblings? 
Thank you. Yes, right? Younger siblings quit whining. We do not want to hear it, right? So I'm going to put it on your connection card, all right? Digital, handwritten, whatever you want to do, all right? Like, we read these things in the Gospels, and we just kind of, we're so familiar with the stories, we don't, like, think about what the disciples are doing here. They are six hours into what should have been a two-hour boat ride. The wind is howling. They have been rowing their guts out. It is dark. It is three in the morning. The wind is blowing in their face. The waves are crashing around them. And out for a stroll on the lake, three and a half miles, comes Jesus. In this miracle, Jesus, he blows away anything we have seen up to this point in the Gospel of John. He does things in this miracle that just bury what he has done up until now. As he walks, he hikes three and a half miles on the surface of the water. Forces like gravity, solids passing through liquids, wind, water currents, they all bow down before the power of Jesus. If that is not enough, John tells us that when he gets into the boat, immediately... Immediately, the boat reached the shore where they were heading. That is freaky stuff. He gets into the boat, and the next one to two miles, just there, done. Not only do things like gravity and liquids passing, you know, solids passing through liquids, not only does that stuff bow down before the power of Jesus, factors like time and space and velocity and more all bow down before the power of Jesus as well. This, this, is, this is nothing like what they have seen. And as this happens, the disciples have an emotional response. John tells us that they were frightened. They're frightened. Now, what are they afraid of? It's not the wind, it's not the dark, it's not the waves. No. When they saw Jesus approaching, walking on the water, they were frightened. Jesus comes walking on the water, and it becomes very clear. Nobody's making him be the bread king. Nobody's making him do anything. He's not going to be controlled. He's not going to be manipulated. He's not going to be pushed around. He is somebody to be bowed down to. He does things they've never seen before, and it scares them. And not only do Jesus' actions scare them, but Jesus' words are equally as frightening. He gets to the boat, and he says to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Now, when I said that, nobody in the room went, Right? So let me tell you why that would have been frightening to these guys. Jesus says, it is I. Literally, out of the Greek, that is ego eimi. Ego eimi, not lego my ego, ego eimi. 
all right, which literally translated as I, I am. Now, throughout John's biography, Jesus will regularly refer to himself with this phrase. And he does so in a way that points back to a scene in the Old Testament. You go way back to the book of Exodus, and you have Moses arguing with God. God's like, Moses, I want you to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. You're going to lead them out of slavery in Egypt and into you know, freedom in the promised land. And Moses is arguing with God about whether or not he's the guy to get the job done. Maybe somebody else should do the job. And at one point, Moses says to God, he's one of his best arguments to get out of the role. He says, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? This seems like a weird way to try and get out of the job to me. Another sermon, all right? What am I going to tell them if they ask me your name? Now, the answer that God gives to Moses, scholars throughout the centuries all agree that God is trying to reveal to Moses and to anybody afterwards some of his attributes in his name. Like God's nature comes across to us in the name he identifies himself by. So God says to Moses, he says, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. Now, this is not a Popeye thing. I am what I am, and that's all to what I am, all right? Only the old people get that joke. The young people have no idea who that is, all right? All right. When, 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 when he says, tell them I am sent you, among other things, God's trying to express to Moses and to anybody who reads that, that God stands apart from the totality of the created order. Everything we know, everyone we know, has a time and place of existence. God is saying, hey, I exist apart from time, space, and matter. I always have, I always will. I do so in my power, in my power alone. Everything you know, everybody you deal with, they have a time and place of origin. I stand apart from the totality of creation as the self-existent one. I am that I am. Now, Old Testament, flashback to that other slide, if you would please, Claudia. Thank you. Um, Old Testament is written in Hebrew. There is a version of the Old Testament that's written in Greek. It's known as the Septuagint. It was used extensively during the first century, the time Jesus is on the planet. When they're translating this passage from Hebrew to Greek, and they get to this I am thing, take a guess at what Greek phrase they use. It's ego eimi. It's ego eimi. Who, who do I tell them you are? Tell them I am sent you. Tell them ego eimi sent you. See, that night, the disciples are out there they're in this boat, and there's potential for them to get caught up into this whole bread king thing. And that night, Jesus comes walking on the water, wielding the power that only God himself can wield. He comes walking on the water, doing things that only God himself can do. And when they see this, it causes the hair on the back of their neck to stand up. It causes the blood running through their veins to run cold. And then Jesus says to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. 
Ego a me. Don't be afraid. I am who I am. But you don't need to be afraid. In his words and in his deeds, Jesus is pointing out to his disciples that he is the king of the cosmos come to them with skin on. And as such, he has no intention of being anybody's bread king. He is not here to do anybody's small-minded, selfish, self-absorbed bidding. That is not who he is. That's not what he's here for. And he comes walking on the water to make that abundantly clear to the guys in the boat. It's as if he's saying to them, I'm not their bread king. I'm not your bread king. You boys got that? Somebody dry my feet off when I get in there. This miracle stands apart from anything he has done up until this point. Now again, John, he picked the miracles that he did to try and teach us things about who Jesus is, about how life works. Just in case you haven't been picking up what I'm putting down, I would argue John included this miracle so that we would understand Jesus isn't the bread king. Jesus is the one true king. He's not the bread king. Now, I would still contend, hey, our felt needs, our kids, our marriages, our health, our workplace, our finances, and more, Jesus cares about those things. And I would even argue, if I follow Jesus, it has a positive impact on those areas of my life. But if that is the primary reason, or the only reason that I follow Jesus, so that he'll do what I want him to do when it comes to my felt needs, then I've reduced Jesus to the bread king. And John is very clear. He's not the bread king. He came to be the one true king. And here's the thing. This idea that Jesus is the one true king, this comes with implications that are both frightening and comforting. See, if Jesus is the one true king, we should come acknowledging and confessing. If Jesus is the one, if he is really who John says he is, we should come acknowledging that as finite human beings, we do not have the power, the wisdom, or the capacity to determine truth and morality for ourselves. That job, we come acknowledging, that job is reserved for divinity and divinity alone. We come acknowledging that God alone has the right to determine truth and morality, not us. And if that's the case, then I need to come confessing as well. Confessing that I have not always lived up to the standards that God has set out for me in life, that he alone has the right to determine. I come confessing that I'm a sinner in need of a savior, that I need the one true king to save me from my sins. If Jesus is the one true king, I come acknowledging and confessing. If Jesus is the one true king, I come conforming and realigning. See, again, this is just human nature. When it comes to things like truth and morality, it's human nature to buck up against what's, what, what, what a divine being would be saying to us about these things. 
It's just human nature that when we hear or we read something that God has said about truth and morality that we don't like, to look for a way to make it more palatable to us. And so we'll hear, we'll read what God has to say about things like human sexuality or marriage or race or money or mood-altering substances or the sanctity of life or about forgiving somebody that's wronged me or or you, you take it. God will write it, God will say it, we'll hear it, and we don't like it. And so we look for a way to try and get what God has said to conform to the way we think about that issue. We look for a way to get what God has said to realign with what our culture is putting forward. That's not how it works if Jesus is really the one true king. If Jesus is the one true king, and there's a difference between what I think about what's true and what Jesus is saying is true, then the problem lies with me. And he doesn't need to conform anything. I need to conform my thinking to his. If Jesus is the one true king, and there's a difference between how I say life should be lived and how he says life should be lived, I need to realign my actions to his directives. The problem lies with me. He doesn't need to change anything, not if he's the one true king. If he's the one true king, I come to him conforming and realigning, not expecting him to conform and realign to me. And if Jesus is the one true king, I should follow Jesus for who he is, not for what he can do for me. Now again, I believe Jesus is concerned about our felt needs. I believe following Jesus is beneficial for our felt needs. And I don't even, I'm not even mad at you. Like, if you're like, hey, I want my felt needs met and I'd like to succeed and I'm happy when those things go well in my life. Me too. But again, if that's the primary or only reason I'm following Jesus, it doesn't work. And one of the best ways to know is that the primary or only reason I'm following Jesus is, is when my felt needs get, don't, don't get met, I walk on Jesus. Because I'm just here for what he's doing for me now. And when he quits doing it, I'll go find somebody else who I think will. That's not why we follow the one true king. We follow the one true king because he saved our soul from our sins. Because he rules supreme over the totality of humanity. Because genuine life is found in a relationship with him not in what we get from him. If Jesus is the one true king, it comes with implications that are both frightening and comforting. Acknowledging our brokenness, that can be intimidating. Surrendering control of our lives and, and the right to determine truth and morality, that's scary. Knowing we might not get what we want, that can be unnerving. Following Jesus as the one true king, that's frightening. But I'm telling you right now, there is freedom in knowing you're forgiven. There is something relieving And having the job of determining truth and morality in the hands of somebody who's actually qualified 
to do that job. And there is something rich and beautiful in trusting God to take care of my needs and wants. See, I think with this miracle, John is trying to drive us to ask ourselves, what kind of king are we looking for? Like, are we, just, are we just looking for a king who gives us what we ask? We want a king who's nice to have around, but who isn't going to get into our business and tell us what to do. Are we just looking for a bread king? Are we really looking for the one true king? Will we come to Jesus acknowledging his authority in our lives? Will we come to Jesus confessing our sin and our brokenness? Will we come to Jesus conforming our thoughts to his revelation? Realigning our lives to his directives? Will we come to Jesus simply because he's worthy as who he is, not because of what we're going to get from him? See, that's the one true king. That's who John's pointing us to here. So before the worship team comes back up and we worship together, we're going to pray. And if today you walked in the doors going, hey, I, I, at some point in my life I surrendered myself to Jesus as the one true king, but as we're having this conversation, I feel God putting his finger on an area of my life where I'm trying to get Jesus to be my bread king. I'd invite you while we pray. Have a conversation with God about that. And if walking through those doors, logging on to the live stream feed, you've never come to a place where you said, you know what? God's God, not me. He and he alone has the right to determine truth and morality. And I haven't lived up to his standards. I need to be forgiven. If today you're ready to surrender your life to the one true king for the first time, again, I would invite you to pray with me. So let's pray together and then we'll worship. Father, again, thank you just for John, just for the ways he captures who Jesus is and where life is found. Father, for some of us, just as we're having this conversation, we can just sense your hand on our lives. Just pointing out to us areas where we've made Jesus our bread king. And just in the, in the quietness of our hearts as we have a conversation with you, we just want to acknowledge that. We want to ask for your forgiveness. We just want to ask you to help us move our lives in a different direction. Father, for others of us today, we just come to you acknowledging you are God, not us. We just confess we are broken. 
We haven't lived as you've called us to live. Forgive us, please. Thank you that you sent Jesus to be a suffering servant, to die in our place. We put our faith, our hope, our trust in him. We surrender our lives to him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you.